I have to hold up last week's paper just because I don't want us to forget the, the glow. Um, giving and getting love. The Pope Mobile, seared in our memory, I think, going through the streets of Philadelphia. I love the title, Giving and Getting Love. It's just a, a beautiful week. And, and I thought many of you, how many of you even went down on the boulevard or tried to get close? You know, some of you, good. Yeah, it was one. Oh, you're the only one that got close? Or the only, you know, there were others that tried. See, there was another hand over here, yeah. Okay, so, uh, but it was, uh, it was stunning. I, I, just, uh, I just hope that we can hang on to that. Who knew, after all? that a Roman Catholic pope could take wild and woolly, often violent, Philadelphia by storm. Or attract Lutherans and Mexicans and black Baptists and nuns and unchurched and giddy high school girls and boys and awestruck college students, movie stars and disabled people in wheelchairs. Who knew? Reporters called him the Hope Pope. I like that. He had a lot of names. The Hope Pope's pretty cool. And he was one who has really practiced random acts of kindness and saying nice things to each other. He got us all doing the same thing. Imagine that. Whoa. The Philadelphia Inquirer tells this awesome tale of last Sunday with excitement. They write this. People of different ethnicities and cultures and political parties stood side by side. Suburbanites who had battled their way into the city for miles away, missionary-driven faithful who had traveled from distant nations to see a beloved pope, they stood on a parkway rich in symbolism where the flags of nations, Guatemala and Greece and Monaco, tell all who see them flying, you are home. The people's feet ached, but their hearts were full. Catherine Brennan said, it feels like a big embrace. And another said, we feel like everybody here is family. This is a microcosm of what the world could be if we all embraced each other the way he does. Yes, even I was caught up in papal fever, as you can tell. Uh, Having already completed three worship services in the morning last Sunday, it's rare to find a fourth worship service irresistible for me on television the same afternoon. But there I was, glued to the The spirit of cooperation and caregiving for tourists and those attending the world meeting of families was stunning, was it not? Watching the Pope-mobile creeping through jubilant throngs of pilgrims while hundreds of iPhones were lined up snapping selfies, even the bishops and archbishops and priests with their iPhone selfies. Babies were passed by strangers, complete strangers, took your child for a whole lineup of arms and passed them over to the security guards so they could receive a papal kiss. The one who I will always remember is the little papal baby. Do you remember? the? We all saw the papal baby um, and even the papal dog. I think they had a dog in a, in a mitre as well. Wheelchair-bound people along the road um, stole our hearts and, of course, his. Pope Francis made his way to the four o'clock worship in front of the art museum. And I think the caption for the broadcast should have been Psalm 133.1. Oh, let's say it together. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Psalm 133.1. It was on the cover at 745, so they had a little cheater. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. This psalm was a declaration, a song that was sung uh, by the Jewish pilgrims as they would make their way to Jerusalem for several holidays throughout the year. They would come from other countries and other places on their donkeys and their camels all the way to Jerusalem for the holy days. And they would sing this kind of song, how good it was. They all could be together like the United Nations. The verse reminds us then that God has made us as interdependent, dwelling together in peace as his chosen people. We bear witness to the God who made us when we cherish one another. Even this troubled and dangerous city, ironically, Philadelphia, called Brotherly Love, fulfilled its real name in the glow of the Pope's Christ-like example. I think even Santa Claus would have been appreciated at the Phillies game or the Eagles game, wherever he got booed this time in the Pope's shadow. But this brotherly love was absolutely filling us up, contagious. Is that how we would describe our daily life as Christians? Are we utterly contagious and amazing and filled up when we go to work and we walk in or, or when we're trying to get out some of our reports or, or when we're asked, you know, to, to uh, participate in the stewardship campaign and share some of our sweet fruits so that the world does not need to be sad. Oh, you know, we're not perfect. We know it. But we can, when all of us pull together, like on the parkway, we can think we will accomplish amazing things if we just dwell together in unity. As you know, the theme for my sabbatical uh, study was the danger of a single story. And I took that title not from myself, but from a Nigerian author, Chimamande Adichie. She did a TED Talk, which you may know are um, inspirational talks about 19 minutes long on YouTube on many, many topics. And um, uh, it was pointed out to me and how many mistakes we were making about Nigerians, for instance. She said, you know, in this TED Talk, um, I was raised in Nigeria, and, um, and I came to America for college, and my roommate there said to me, oh, why don't you, I love African music, why don't you play some of that tribal music? And so she, she said, imagine her surprise when I pulled out uh, Beyonce. And she goes, oh. And she said, well, your English is so good. How do you speak such English from Nigeria? And she said, I guess you don't know that that's the national language in Nigeria. Well, it was going like that until um, she said, I realized, you know, that all of our history in Africa, at least much of it, is written by British missionaries or people who have come to dominate countries. And the novelists write the British perspective of the African life. And she said, I realized I need to tell our story from within for the world. And so she began writing novels to do just that. And, uh, and they have been very interesting reading. And so she got me thinking about 
wanting to travel more and to get outside of our own single story because it brings assumptions, stereotypes. If we only know how we live and if we only stay in the group of friends that, um, that is oh, just like us, it diminishes us in some ways because we were meant to fit together like pieces in a puzzle because of our, our diversity and our differences. I love to go to Tanzania for that reason, to Appalachia, down to St. James School and listen to the young children, African-American, what their daily life is like just one day is amazing. And yet to hear how they long for uh, so many things um, that um, we just wish we could give to them all and, and safety being number one down in, um, in Philadelphia. But without knowing people personally, as I said, um, we are um, impoverished, people of a different culture. God made us to be diverse and also to blend together in a rich new uh, love affair. Uh, I had insights when I was in Norway and Sweden on the single story. You know, my grandfather came from Sweden and became a Lutheran pastor. And so, you know, you like to think there would be a fair bit of faith there. But um, uh, the Norwegians and Swedes uh, worship attendants make America look like we're just passionate about being in church on Sunday because there are many atheists that I was talking to, people who don't go to church at all anymore. And so I was fascinated to hear their stories about how this has happened and how they how they go through their days. Um, there, there was an Ethiopian man at one of the um, bed and breakfasts. Uh, he was the most Christian person I met, I think, um, over there. And he was a man without a country. He had fled, um, he's 35 years old, fled Ethiopia because of political, um, uh, he didn't agree with the government and spoke out. And he got, either he gets arrested or he flees. He spent 16, 17 years trying to find a country where he could uh, come and make a living but uh, he has no passport anymore. It expired. If he goes home, he'll be arrested and thrown in jail. So he has no passport. He can't go home. He can't get a job. He now has two children and a wife. He's depressed and has nowhere to go. And he said the only thing that sustains him is his daily prayers down by the side of the lake where he gets on his hands and knees and spends time each morning with God. When he rises, he feels he can go on one more day. It was heartbreaking. Then the Syrian young man at the bed and breakfast, the same place, Firas. He'd just been on one of those horrible boat rides where people are dying and sinking across the waters. And he came to Sweden, as many have, 30, uh, about 30 years old. And all he, it was a, a Ramadan, and he was Muslim. And so uh, the bed and breakfast owner was always very <laughs> he's hilarious. But he had all these people from different places stopping in for dinners and things. And Firas was always in the shower, you know. He said, I can't understand the guy. He's showering all the time. He's, up, he's not dirty. He's not doing much. And he goes and showers. And we said, well, it's Ramadan. He may need to, to bathe before he has his prayer time and uh, this kind of thing during the day. So you learn customs, although you're, you're not getting them. And then you all of a sudden realize, oh, that's why he's doing what he's doing. He had come over, and all he did was Skype to his mother in Syria and just ask me and everyone, how can you help me get my mother to join us? I so want my mother to be with me and to be safe. And so he was a, has a sweetheart. And all these people were just so, uh, I just felt filled up, and yet it showed me a deep sorrow as well uh, of lives put on hold indefinitely, and made me reflect on my own blessings, sort of a carefree life in so many ways, and the weaknesses 
that, um, that I have as well with new eyes. This African philosophy of Ubuntu, I am because we are, is God's dream. It's not just African dream. God's dream of interdependency. Another of Ubuntu's translations, as you know, is how can one of God's children be happy if the others are sad? It's been used even by American corporations um, and by the Celtics coach as a philosophy for building teamwork and getting to know individuals in your workplace. I think its studies have shown that if you go to work and you don't have relationships with the people at work that feed you, that are, are uh, life-giving, that you are not as happy or healthy. And so um, this Ubuntu at work has been used by many corporations, and, um, and Nelson Mandela adds to that, it is the profound sense that we are human only through the humanity of others. That if we are to accomplish anything in this world, it will be equal measure due to the work and achievements of others. It's not exactly the American philosophy of, you know, capitalism and being number one and rising to the top of the pile. Uh, it's joining hands and rising together, which is terribly Christian as well. The Christians lived the Ubuntu lifestyle in that book of Acts. It says there in our lesson for today, the whole Christian community were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed ownership of any possessions. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was distributed to each as any had need. How can we be happy when so many are hurting, said the early Christians. And you know what they said in the first century about these strange new believers, these people that were meeting in homes and that would come together under great persecution? They said, how they love one another. Women and men and all these people that were outcasts and oppressed, how they love one another. It's what grew the movement. It was the, it was the radiating circle and vibrancy of their ability to incorporate all the, the poor and those who were uh, misfits and everybody who was outcasts, the diversity of countries and languages. My, how they love one another. That's what draws people to worship, to come to church on Sunday. So many people are giving up on church because it doesn't add anything to their lives, they say. I've got soccer on weekends, and the team there is much more exciting and supportive than when I go to worship on Sunday morning. I have to let something go in my life. I'm too busy. So let's see, church or this, teamwork or the diversity and the fighting and the emptiness I feel when I go to some worship services, they give up church. This is the answer. It's not complicated in our society. It always was this way. My, how they love one another. How they loved me when I came in the door for the first time. How they said hello to me when they were in a hurry and they stopped to show me where the Sunday school classrooms were. Oh, we get pretty good marks at Upper Dublin for being friendly. And we love to eat together and laugh together and share together. But we can always be mindful of if we are doing it enough every day both in church and outside, in the neighborhoods where people are looking for a place to find meaning and inspiration and support in their lives. And you can invite them here. My, how they loved me when I was in need. 
Today is the first Sunday of October, as you well know, but traditionally in the Lutheran Church, it has been called Worldwide Communion Sunday. Worldwide Communion Sunday. And so we in individual parishes celebrate that we are joined in ever-widening circles around the globe today, united in one common meal, kind of like the sweet fruits meal in Ubuntu, that we all share together, Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, from China to India to Argentina to Oregon, by faith in Christ, the meal makes us one in Christ's body and blood. We can add, we are one as well with Buddhist and with Jews and with Sikhs and with Muslims, so many groups that are labeled and we seem to be suspect of. Today, we remind ourselves we are all part of God's creation, one family. Our faith makes us one. I could say Upper Dublin is because we are part of other families of faith near and far who love and serve Christ with their unique gifts. And that love is a microcosm of what the world can be if we embraced each other as Pope Francis did last week. The visual will long be seared in our memory and of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, which is before our eyes every week. With open hearts we accept one another, without judgment, on small issues or large, in a nation right now increasingly dividing and getting up their own camps, circling wagons in different divisions for different reasons. The weekend's been sad reminder this weekend compared to last with the horrible Oregon shootings of those 10 innocent victims, especially singled out if they were Christian and shot in the head. Oh, we've got much work to do. I close with the lyrics of a faithful song that I love by Beth Nielsen Chapman. I heard her, she was a Nashville artist who was writing this song when she was discovered to have brain cancer. She couldn't seem to get the words to the song. She was thankfully um, made well when she finished her song, and it goes like this. Every day is new, and if anything is true, all that matters when we're through is how we love. From the smallest act of kindness, in a word, a smile, a touch, oh, sometimes we forget trying to be so strong in this world of right and wrong, but all that matters When we're gone, all that matters all along, all we have that carries on is how we love. Amen? Amen.